choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 301 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 14, Commander Alan B. Shepard, Jr. First plane ride was in a homemade glider my buddy and I built, and fortunately we didn't get more than four feet off the ground because it crashed. <laughs> but uh, first legitimate uh, airplane ride was when I was working at the, at the local airport, and uh, as a reward, partial reward for, for my activities, I was, was given a ride as a passenger. And uh, after two or three of those, the same pilot, uh, he gave me a chance to play with the controls. And that, that's when it really all started. Alan Shepard was the brashest, cockiest, and most flamboyant of America's original Mercury 7 astronauts but he was also regarded by many as the best. Intense, colorful, dramatic, but the most consistent aspect of his character was to be better than anyone else. The man who hit a golf ball on the moon, he was among the most private of American public figures, and until his death in 1998, he guarded the story of his life zealously. Alan Bartlett Shepard, Jr. was born on November 18, 1923, in Derry, New Hampshire, 40 miles northwest of Boston in the southeastern tip of New Hampshire. He was immediately positioned between two loving but dissimilar parents, one of them grim and duty-bound and the other boisterous and spirited. His father was Alan B. Shepard, Sr., and his mother was Pauline Renza Shepard. He had a younger sister, Pauline, who was known as Polly. Shepard was one of the many descendants of Mayflower passenger Richard Warren. Alan Bartlett Shepard, Sr. was known as Bart. He worked in the Derry National Bank, which was owned by Alan Shepard's grandfather. Bart joined the National Guard in 1915 and served in France with the American Expeditionary Force during World War I. He remained in the National Guard between the wars and was recalled to active duty during World War II, rising to the rank of lieutenant colonel. Although the Shepherds were well off, the children were not coddled. Their father valued work and made sure each child performed their share of domestic chores. Bart was stern and a serious disciplinarian. Allen inherited a stoicism and toughness of character from him, all traits that Bart had inherited from his prosperous father. In 
Alan was closer to his mother and got his playfulness from her. Pauline taught her children the value of a good time. Here's Alan Shepard recalling his early childhood. I thought I was pretty normal uh, because we did chores around the farm. I uh, got involved in my own newspaper route to make money to buy a bicycle. Uh, and toward the end of the fourth and fifth and sixth grades, I started building model airplanes. Uh, of course, in our grade school in those days, there were no organized sports at all. We just went out and ran around the schoolyard for recess. Uh, no organized sports of any kind uh, through, uh, through the early grades. So I suppose I, I always felt I was pretty normal, and I did what I had to do around home and did what I had to do in school. I didn't mind studying. Uh, of course, some obviously math and, and uh, the physical science subjects interested me more than maybe some of the, the more artistic uh, um, subjects, but I think I was a pretty good student. Obviously, uh, the teacher thought so. Shepard attended Adams School in Derry, New Hampshire, where his academic performance impressed his teacher, Berto Wiggins. She saw something special in his kinetic young personality, and she worked to convert his scattered, unfocused energy into a sharp beam of brilliance. Allen was very strong in math. Later, as a test pilot and astronaut, he would need to absorb huge amounts of technical information and could often do so without needing to write things down, a capacity he credited to Mrs. Wiggins. Shepard skipped the sixth grade and proceeded to middle school at Oak Street School in Derry, where he skipped the eighth grade as well. But it's, you know, even in those days, a one-room country school with one teacher, uh, six grades, was unusual. And I think it was because, of course, I came from a rural community, and and that was the the school of uh, of that particular day. Um, I think it was beneficial to me because of the fact that one grade was not reciting continuously, obviously doing a little studying and so on, and so I think I learned more in the first grade about the second grade, and consequently I only spent five years there. Now, I like to say I was smart enough to finish six grades in five years, but I think perhaps the teacher was just glad to get rid of me at that point. <laughs> like so many astronauts, Allen was a member of the Boy Scouts of America and achieved the rank of first-class scout. In 1936, Allen went to the Pinkerton Academy, a private school in Derry that his father had attended and where his grandfather had been a trustee. He completed years 9 to 12 there. Fascinated by flight, he created a model airplane club at the Academy and his Christmas present in 1938 was a flight in a Douglas DC-3. The following year, he began cycling to Manchester Airfield, where he would do odd jobs in exchange for the occasional ride in an airplane or informal flying lessons. Grade school, 9, 10, early teens, when Lindbergh made his flight, he was the big hero. Uh, I started building model airplanes. Later, in the early teens, I used to ride my bike every Saturday morning to the nearest airport 10 miles away 
push airplanes in and out of the hangars and clean up the hangars, get a free ride once in a while, get to hold the stick once in a while. And that's when my interest in aviation really started. Uh, Shepard graduated from Pinkerton in 1940. Because World War II was already raging in Europe, his father wanted him to join the Army. Shepard chose the Navy instead. He easily passed the entrance exam to the United States Naval Academy at Annapolis in 1940. But at 16, he was too young to enter that year. The Navy sent him to the Admiral Farragut Academy, a prep school for the Naval Academy, from which he graduated with the class of 1941. Tests taken at Farragut indicated that he had an IQ of 145, but his grades were only mediocre. At Annapolis, Shepard enjoyed aquatic sports. He was a keen and competitive sailor, winning several races, including a regatta held by the Annapolis Yacht Club. He learned to sail all the types of boats the Academy owned, up to and including the USS Freedom, a 90-foot schooner. He also participated in swimming and rowed with the eight. During his Christmas break in 1942, he went to the Principia College to be with his sister, who was unable to go home due to wartime travel restrictions. There, he met Louise Brewer, whose parents were pensioners at the DuPont family estate and, like Pauline Shepard, were devout Christian scientists. Due to the war, the usual four-year course at Annapolis was cut short by a year, and he graduated and was commissioned as an ensign on June 6, 1944. He ranked 463rd in his class of 915. The following month, he became secretly engaged to Louise. In 1944, he received a Bachelor of Science at the U.S. Naval Academy. After a month of classroom instruction in aviation, Shepard was posted to a destroyer, the USS Cogswell, in August 1944. It was the Navy's policy that aviation candidates should first have some service at sea. At the time, the destroyer was deployed on active service in the Pacific Ocean. Shepard joined it when it returned to the naval base at Ulithi on October 30th. After just two days at sea on the Cogswell, Shepard helped rescue 172 sailors from the cruiser USS Reno, which had been torpedoed by a Japanese submarine. Later, the Cogswell was buffeted by Typhoon Cobra in December 1944, a storm in which three other destroyers went down. The Cogswell also battled kamikazes in the invasion of Lingayen Gulf in January 1945. The Cogswell returned to the United States for an overhaul in 1945. Shepard was given three weeks leave, in which time he and Louise decided to marry. The ceremony took place on March 3, 1945, in St. Stephen's Lutheran Church in Wilmington, Delaware. His father, Bart, served as his best man. The newlyweds had only a brief time together before Shepard rejoined the Cogswell. 
On Shepard's second cruise, he was appointed a gunnery officer, and he was responsible for the 20mm and 40mm anti-aircraft guns on the ship's bow. They engaged kamikazes in the Battle of Okinawa. The ship also participated in the Allied naval bombardments of Japan and was present in Tokyo Bay for the surrender of Japan in September 1945. Shepard returned to the United States later that month. After the war, Allen and Louise had two children, both daughters, Laura, born in 1947, and Julie, born in 1951. Following the death of Louise's sister in 1956, they raised her five-year-old niece, Judith Williams, whom they renamed Alice to avoid confusion with Julie as their own. Although they never adopted her, Alice was treated like their own children. Eventually, they would have six grandchildren. In November of 1945, Shepard arrived at the Naval Air Station Corpus Christi in Texas, where he commenced basic flight training in January of 1946. He was an average student, and for a time, risked being dropped from flight school and reassigned to the surface Navy. To make up for this, he took private lessons at a local civilian flying school, something the Navy frowned on, but he earned a civil pilot's license. His flying skills gradually improved, and by early 1947, his instructors rated him above average. He was then sent to Naval Air Station Pensacola in Florida for advanced training. His final test was six perfect landings on the carrier USS Saipan. The following day, he received his naval aviator wings, which his father pinned on his chest. Shepard was assigned to Fighter Squadron 42, flying the Vault F-4U Corsair. He departed on his first cruise of the Caribbean on the Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1948. Most of the aviators were like Shepard on their first assignment. Those not on their first assignment were given the opportunity to qualify for night landings on a carrier, a dangerous maneuver, especially in a Corsair, which had to bank sharply on approach. Shepard managed to persuade his squadron commander to allow him to qualify as well, and of course he was successful. After briefly returning to Norfolk, the carrier set out on a nine-month tour of the Mediterranean Sea, where Shepard earned a reputation for carousing and chasing women. He also instituted a ritual of, whenever he could, calling his wife Louise at 1,700 hours her time each day. In 1950, Shepard was selected to attend the United States Naval Test Pilot School at Naval Air Station Patuxent River in Maryland. Obviously, I was challenged by becoming a naval aviator by landing aboard aircraft carriers and so on, but, you know, in those days I figured, well, I was just one of those guys that uh, was doing his job, and maybe I could roll the airplane a little better than the next guy, but, but when I was selected, uh, after my very first tour of squadron duty to become one of the youngest candidates for the test pilot school, and all of a sudden I began to realize, hey, uh, maybe you are a little bit better than somebody else, or maybe you're just doing your job better than the next guy. You may not have any extra talent, 
but maybe you're just paying more attention to what you're doing. And I really think that's when I realized that that I was the sort of person that was objective enough and dedicated enough uh, to do a good job. And of course, then the challenge to keep doing better and better, uh, to to fly the best test flight that anybody had ever flown, and and uh, and obviously that led to uh, my being recognized as one of the more experienced uh, test pilots, and that led to the astronaut business. As a test pilot, Shepard conducted high-altitude tests to obtain information about the light and air masses at different altitudes over North America, carrier suitability certification of the McDonnell F-2H Banshee, experiments with the Navy's new in-flight refueling system, and tests of the angled flight deck. But on the other hand, due to his playful nature, he was nearly court-martialed by the station commander, Rear Admiral Alfred M. Pride, after looping the Chesapeake Bay Bridge and making low passes over the beach at Ocean City, Maryland, and the base. But Shepard's superiors, John Hyland and Robert M. Elder, interceded on his behalf. Shepard's next assignment was to the VF-193, a night fighter squadron flying the Banshee that was based at Naval Air Station Moffett Field, California. The squadron was part of Commander James D. Ramage, Air Group 19. Naval aviators with experience in jet aircraft were still relatively rare, and Ramage specifically requested Shepard's assignment on the advice of Elder, who commanded VF-193's sister squadron, VF-191. Ramage made Shepard his own wingman, a decision that would save Ramage's life in 1954 when his oxygen system failed and Shepard talked him through a landing. As squadron operations officer, Shepard's most important task was imparting his knowledge of flying jets to his fellow aviators to keep them alive. He served two tours on the aircraft carrier USS Oriskany in the Western Pacific. It set out on a combat tour of Korea in 1953 during the Korean War, but the Armistice Agreement ended the fighting in July 1953 and Shepard did not see combat. Next, Shepard was sent back to Patuxent River. He flight tested the McDonnell F-3H Demon, the Vought F-8 Crusader, Douglas F-4D Skyray, and Grumman F-11 Tiger. The Vought F-7U Cutlass tended to go into an inverted spin during a snap roll. This was not unusual. Many aircraft did this, but normally, if the pilot let go of the stick, the aircraft would correct itself. When he attempted this in the F-7U, Shepard found this was not the case. He was unable to break out of the spin and was forced to eject. In 1957, Shepard was project test pilot on the Douglas F-5D Skylancer. Shepard did not like the plane and gave it an unfavorable report. The Navy canceled orders for it buying the FAU instead. He also filed an unfavorable report on the F-11F after a harrowing incident in which the engine failed on him during a high-speed dive. 
Fortunately, he managed to restart the engine. Shepard was an instructor at the test pilot school and then entered the Naval War College at Newport, Rhode Island. He graduated in 1957 and became an aircraft readiness officer on the staff of Commander-in-Chief Atlantic Fleet. By this time, he had logged more than 3,600 hours of flying time, including 1,700 hours in jets. On October 4, 1957, everything changed when the Soviet Union launched Sputnik 1, the first artificial satellite. This shattered American confidence in its technological superiority, creating a wave of anxiety known as the Sputnik Crisis. In response, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration was established in October of 1958 as a civilian agency to develop space technology. One of its first initiatives was Project Mercury, which aimed to launch a man into Earth orbit and return him safely to the Earth. NASA recruited its first astronauts from the ranks of military test pilots. The service records of 508 graduates of test pilot schools were obtained from the United States Department of Defense. From these, 110 were found that matched the minimum standards. The 110 were then split into three groups, with the most promising in the first group. The first group of 35, which included Shepard, assembled at the Pentagon on February 2, 1959. They were promised that the careers of volunteers would not be adversely affected. NASA officials then briefed them on Project Mercury, and they conceded that it would be a hazardous undertaking, but emphasized that it was of great national importance. That evening, Shepard discussed the day's events with fellow naval aviators Jim Lovell, Pete Conrad, and Wally Sherall. All of them were concerned, but decided to volunteer anyway. With me, I think it had to be the challenge of being able to control a new vehicle in a new environment. This is a generalization, but it's something which I'd been doing for many, many years as a Navy pilot, as a carrier pilot. And believe me, it's a lot harder to land a jet on an aircraft carrier than it is to land a limb on a moon. (laughs) That's a piece of cake, that moon deal. But that was part of my life, was the challenge. And here you had, yes, a new environment, but, you know, for fighter pilots, you fly upside down uh, a lot of the time. Zero gravity wasn't that big a deal. Now, of course, none of us, being uh, of course non-medics, had thought about the long-term effects of zero gravity. But the short-term effects of zero gravity were not the challenge to us. The challenge was to be able to fly an unusual craft and provide good, positive thinking control of that vehicle. The briefing process was repeated with a second group of 34 candidates a week later. Of the 69, six were found to be over the height limit, 15 were eliminated for other reasons, and 16 declined. This left NASA with 32 candidates. Since this was more than expected, NASA decided not to bother with the remaining 41 candidates, as 32 candidates seemed a more than adequate number from which to select 12 astronauts as planned. 
The degree of interest also indicated that far fewer would drop out during training than anticipated, which would result in training astronauts who would not be required to fly Project Mercury missions. It was therefore decided to cut the number of astronauts selected to just six. Then came a grueling series of physical and psychological tests at the Loveless Clinic and Wright Aerospace Medical Laboratory. Only one candidate, Lovell, was eliminated on medical grounds at this stage, and the diagnosis was later found to be an error. Thirteen others were recommended with reservations. The director of NASA Space Task Group, Robert Gilruth, found himself unable to select only six from the remaining 18, and ultimately seven were chosen. Shepard was informed of his selection on April 1, 1959, Two days later, he traveled to Boston with Louise for the wedding of his cousin, Anne, and was able to break the news to his parents and sister. The identities of these seven were announced at a press conference at Dolly Madison House in Washington, D.C. on April 9, 1959. Pleasure to introduce to you, and I consider it a very real honor, gentlemen. From your right, Malcolm S. Carpenter, Leroy... Leroy G. Cooper, John H. Glenn, Virgil I. Grissom, Walter M. Shira, Alan B. Shepard, Donald K. Slayton. These ladies and gentlemen are the nation's Mercury astronauts. The magnitude of the challenge ahead of them was made clear a few weeks later. On the night of May 18, 1959, when the Mercury 7 gathered at Cape Canaveral to watch their first rocket launch of an SM-65D Atlas, which was similar to the one that would carry them into orbit. A few minutes after liftoff, it spectacularly exploded, lighting up the night sky. The astronauts were stunned. Shepard turned to Glenn and said, Well, I'm glad they got that one out of the way. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 301 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 14, Commander Allen B. Shepard Jr., Part 1. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 131 episodes are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. I want to credit my sources for this episode. The Johnson Space Center, Smoke Jumper, Moon Pilot by Willie Mosley, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Flight by Chris Kraft, C-SPAN, Light This Candle by Neil Thompson, and Wikipedia. Well, Alan Shepard was certainly an interesting man and we will continue with his biographical series next week. In my afterthoughts today, 
Since we've had such a good response on the favorite episodes, I thought it might be fun to read some more of your favorites. Mrs. SRH is here with me, and we are reading these in episode order. We had about five emails that considered episodes in the Apollo 8 series their favorite. First, we have Mike S., who chose episode 160. It was Apollo 8, The Decision, Part 1. He said it's a pivotal moment linking the whole of NASA and the U.S. government strategy directly to the crew, technology, and really heavy risk assessments. Sounds dull? It doesn't have the daring do of some other episodes, but it brings out the very best of Apollo, and it led to my favorite, Apollo 8. Thank you, Mike. Also have another listener that selected those episodes, 160 and 161, and it is Brian K. from Canada, and he said 160 and 161, the decision Apollo 8, are his favorite since the enormity encouraged to take that step are explored and explained among several crucial axes that few would be aware of. For those involved in the Apollo at the time, this may be considered the greatest single step in the entire program. For me, Apollo 8 has become the mission that defines the spirit of human space exploration. Thanks, Brian. Now, Mrs. SRH is here, and she would like to read a few to you. Rob C. from Perth, Australia said, My favorite episode of Space Rocket History is episode 166, Apollo 8, Translunar Injection. It's long been my opinion that the real giant leap came seven months before Neil Armstrong stepped onto the moon. The decision to reassign Apollo 8 from a second Earth orbit test of the Apollo command module to a lunar orbiting mission was breathtakingly bold, both from a safety of the crew perspective and the reputation and future of the Apollo project perspective. It set many records. First manned launch of a Saturn V booster, first manned flight to escape the influence of Earth's gravity, first astronauts able to view the entire Earth from space, fastest re-entry speed to that time, first manned spaceflight to leave Earth orbit, first to be captured by and escape from the gravitational field of another celestial body, first humans to directly see the far side of the moon. All this launched by only the third Saturn V flight after there were serious problems with the second. Yes, Apollo 11 was the achievement of JFK's goal with the landing, the ascent, and the redocking, all additional to Apollo 8. But that 240,000-mile leap was the biggie. Thanks, Rob. Naomi Holmes said, It was hard, but I finally came up with my favorite episode. Number 169, Apollo 8, Christmas, 1968. I was 12 years old in 1968 and vividly remember watching TV and hearing the astronauts read from the Bible. My whole family was together, and it was so emotional and inspiring. Thanks, Naomi. Tom M. wrote, My nomination for your best episode is 171, Apollo 8, The Reaction. To many people, and I think I'm one of them, Apollo 8 was a much more significant mission than Apollo 11. 
It was the first time man had left the narrow confines of the earth and actually visited another celestial body. My recollection for the time was that people were actually more engaged in it than they were Apollo 11. But what makes this episode special to me are the clips of the astronauts' own reaction 45 years later to their flight. It's rare, almost unheard of, for crews to let their hair down and talk about what a mission meant to them then and now, and to see also their interaction with each other, even after 45 years. I'd really like to see that whole event sometime if I can find it. So for these clips alone, this is an episode not to be forgotten, but also your research into what happened to the Russians is enlightening. Thanks, Tom. Andrew W. from Maryland wrote that he enjoys the episodes where I put a personal touch and uh, make remarks after the episode, and in particular, he liked the travels and visits to space exploration-related sites, and he mentions the visits that Mrs. SRH and I went to Kennedy Space Center and our tour that we had And that was episodes 205 through 208. Okay, thank you, Andrew. And we will read a few more next week. Okay, the pictures for this week's episode are available on the website, spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here, you may have noticed that we don't have any commercials or ad revenue. In fact, I have declined all offers to advertise on this podcast. Because I believe the podcast can be supported by its listeners and nobody wants to hear a commercial in the middle of the content. So, we are entirely listener-supported. Please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. To do so, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate as well as they are entered in the weekly drawing. We were pleased to receive five contributions to support the podcast over the past week. Magnus B. from Australia donated at the shuttle level and earned a satellite emoji. Andy I. from Switzerland donated at the Apollo level. Robert W. from Pennsylvania sent in another donation and moved to the Apollo level with rocket emoji. David T. donated at the Mercury level. Dan O. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. We are still at 223 Patreon donors with a goal of reaching 300 for 2019. Our total donors for 2019 have reached 340 with a goal of reaching 600 by the end of the year. For the 340 of you who have already donated for 2019, we certainly appreciate it. This week, we are giving away the SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. Mrs. SRH randomly selected Peter Schaffelberger. If you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all we have for this week. I will try to have episode 302 posted by next Thursday. So long for now.